0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and film critic Rachel Nesbitt. Jelly, jello, yellow. We dipped our toe into America's 70s love affair with this very Italian genre in our first season when we looked at the disco soundtrack, The Eyes of Laura Mars in 1978. But to really understand this extremely influential genre, you have to go back to the old country and see how it started. A word of caution before we start. This is JALO, which means trigger warnings all over the place for assault, murder, domestic violence, and much more. If that isn't for you, we completely understand. We've got a couple of episodes coming up in the next few weeks that may be your bag, including a Jeff Goldblum episode. But Rachel, JALO is very much for you. Uh, how did you come to it? And can you tell us a bit about the genre and kind of its originations?
1: Yeah, well, um, I came to the genre really through kind of word of mouth. You know, I knew other people that kind of seen Suspiria you know the obvious like uh, kind of Italian oh, yeah. horrors you know Fulci. and really it was when I saw um, Dario Argento's Tenebrae I just kind of completely fell in love with that film and I was like what is the genre so I went out there and I was like right what are all the Argento films went through all of those Sergio Martino, Filci, um, the works so it's just kind of been a love affair that started you from that film. Um, in terms of what Shiloh is I guess it's really just an Italian interpretation of a whodunna. Um, obviously it has its literary origins but what kind of sets it apart from other kind of who-done-it or the more kind of traditional Agatha Christie based works is that it's filtered through this grandiose kind of Italian sensibility. It has a lot of kind of Baroque and stylistic excesses. Um, it's quite experimental in terms of, you know, the camera work, our production design, um, some of the narrative uh, constructions that exist which I'm sure we'll get into in the podcast so <laughs> yep. yeah it's just basically yeah we say it's, it's an elaborate um, it, but people's categorization can change um, depending on who you speak to but we're kind of looking at late 60s or mid to late 60s uh, mid mid 60s are really kind of Mario Baba's Blood and Black Lace and then that can stretch on to kind of mid 70s if you're talking golden periods that's really early 70s to mid and then after that we kind of get the more experimental and looser definitions to the 80s
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is there one that you'd recommend people start with? Like, I know Suspiria is the one that you usually like. I mean, it's a midnight movie. People are very familiar with it, especially with the remake, things like that. But is that what you recommend people start with? Because it's kind of out there as well.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of um, debate in the Italian film community about if Suspiria is in fact giallo which I'm sure you've probably heard mm-hmm. lots of. So yeah. I suppose I would probably point people more towards... If that if they wanted Italian horror, I'd say Suspiria... But if it was more of a traditional style, I'd probably say deep red because I know it's not the golden period, but I think that's really one of the best ones that exists. So, yeah, I think that's where I would point people towards.
0: How did it fall out of a golden period? Like, obviously, things kind of peak and go, but why that time in history was it? Were these like the best of the best coming out?
1: Uh, Well, basically, Diogenes released the bird of the crystal plumage. Um, It became a huge success. And loads of film directors, as they did in Italy, would rush to replicate it. And this was really common. So, you know, you think about the Spaghetti Western or the Peplum films and things like that. It was like, right, this is successful, so we'll go out and make as many as we possibly can, <laughs> get them done in really short time periods. So that's what happened with, uh, with Dario Gentis, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. She had all these... Uh, films that would reference animals and numbers and try and replicate those elements but but like anything it slowly began to fade out of fashion uh the plizziatechi which is like an italian crime film that came to the fore more so you'd see kind of other genres uh surpass it and then as the italian film industry declined in the late you know 70s into the 80s you kind of saw less and less of these styles of thrillers but yeah it just basically fell out of favor with the audience and that's why you have a glut of them in that early 70s
2: point. Yeah. Italians are good at driving something into the ground pretty quickly yeah. too. <laughs> that's, that's part of their great business is just taking a yeah. concept and wringing everything out of it in about five years.
0: It's also how experimentative are you comfortable sitting through? Like so it was a couple of the ones we're looking at today and we're sitting in like late period giallos. Mm-hmm. These take a lot of narrative leaps um, and they're definitely experimenting with some things. Visually, they're not as wild as some of them get. Like Suspiria mm-hmm. and like even, even like we you get into later Argento like Inferno, and you're like, "What is it? What am I even looking at right now?" Like it's yeah. cool to look at, but this is just nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it it kind of feels like that's leading towards this, where people get so enamored with like the feeling that you lose sort of the actual whodunit element of it, and it just becomes this like magical visual mess.
1: Yeah, it's that fine line, isn't it, between you know something that's like a concrete um whodunit, and then something that seems to kind of like descend into dream logic and wow. nightmarish visions and the surreal side and it just really depends on the director what they were allowed to do is we'll get into kind of with our Filtri film today Um, he really very much went into that more kind of surreal style which he'd already kind of built in on um his in his 1972 Shallow, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin and we know that Dario Argento did a lot of the kind of more surreal style things but then as beautiful as uh, the Pajama Girl case. But yeah, as beautiful as that is, it's more of a kind of realistic or naturalistic shadow mm. in terms of uh, kind of the other examples that you might might see. So yeah, I think some people, they have certain expectations of what a should be. And they're not always met. You know, you think of that like stylish kind of um, black gloved killer and all these Baroque kind of murders, and that's not always the case, as we're going to get into. There's, you know, films where the murders are quite limited and... There's other kind of elements that are brought to the fore more.
0: As with many gialli, like Suspiria, music plays an important role, not just in setting the tone of the film, but in setting up a chilling finale plot point, as you'll see in our first film today. The Psychic, also known as Murder to the Tune of Seven Black Notes, is one of the most noted works by gialli godfather Luciano Fulci. It's got all the hallmarks, murder mystery, woman in peril, spooky fancy houses, etc. It's wild that this was a flop on release, since it seems like this should be exactly. Exactly, what audiences would have wanted at the time. Uh, Rachel, does this hold up as one of your favorites?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can genuinely say it really does hold up as one of my favorites, uh, like favorite filthy films. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that it's perhaps one of the more overlooked entries in his filmography. In some ways, that's understandable just because of the success of Don't Torture a Duckling and A Lizard in oh. a Woman's Skin, which were, as we said, like released in the genre's golden period. And they're such fantastic films that perhaps I think The Psychic compares unfavorably, but. As a shadow in its own right, it really is superb. I think it's engaging, beautifully shot. It's got this fascinating premise and it really plays out in a satisfactory way, taking its cues from, you know, Poe and things, um, influences like that. So, yeah, you can, I can see why it's maybe not as fondly received as some of his other kind of works in the same same genre, but I do think it's uh, one of his great films. I think Filmm himself said it was his most beautiful film. Mm. It's also one of the least brutal. Like I think about, you know, I can't even get
0: through uh, *Lizard in a Woman's Skin*. Yeah. It's just a little, a little, little much for me at some points. Yeah. Um, and this one is definitely, if like you, you want an entry point, I feel like it's one of the more palatable mm-hmm. ones in oh, terms sure. of the violence and the gore. And yeah.
2: I also think it's a little, like you were saying. It's it's even though this is of the two we're going to talk about today, this is the more kind of uh, surreal it's still like a very like Hollywood style mystery plot like I think that that kind of a thing that a lot of people can be turned off with Giallo is it's not necessarily like you find this evidence and you go here sometimes it's just like Haha! Ha, here's the bad guy. It's the end, and uh, I think people who like Hollywood mysteries sometimes don't love it for that reason. But I think that this one is a very like she is figuring it out as as she goes along, and you're kind of you know there's twists in kind of the classic way, and uh, yeah, like you say, it's not. Not not Agatha Christie, almost, in an interesting way. I
1: think it's just very well constructed, isn't it? Like, it's satisfying as you go through it. It makes sense, mostly kind of ties together, um, which (laughs) I suppose, yeah, more in the Hollywood vein than our Mm. Italian kind of thriller style. Well, speaking of
0: uh, the sense this movie makes, Rachel, do you want to give us a very brief plot summary on this one? Uh, We are going to spoil this. It is available to watch. It's uh, one of the more accessible ones, so uh, we do all recommend watching it.
1: So, yeah, The Psychic is basically about a young woman who can see into the future, and is horrified when she uh, sees the circumstances surrounding her own death yeah that's exactly it <laughs> yeah, it's, quite, it's, it's a quite, strange one because it is such a simple premise as we said it's constructed well but i mean it's not going off in all these tangents and it's actually in terms of the cast very like reduced number of people and players mm-hmm. involved uh yeah so which kind of makes it more contained i would say It's got
0: a lot of elements of uh, Eyes of Lower Mars, which Mm. we we all love and came out the year after this. Like, you're seeing a lot of, like, she sees other people's deaths, and of course it all ends up being related to her, and you don't realize that she's, you know, seeing elements of her own thing. Mm -hmm. So it being the most Hollywood makes sense that that's the one that they would take the most elements from.
1: Yeah, well, um, it's interesting because when— uh, the Psychic, I think it was released in American cinemas in about 1979. Yeah. not 100% sure on that, but I think that's when it was. And everybody kind of noted the similarities to the Eyes of Laura Mars at the time. And they even accused Fulci and uh Dordana <laughs> of plagiarism. But of course, the psychic, you know, predated it by a couple yeah. of years. What were some of the other criticisms about this? Because
0: this uh sent Fulci unfortunately into a spiral for a while. He didn't make any films for was like
1: two or three years after this? Yeah, it's probably yeah, probably about that. It's a strange one because I think for Fulci, he was just so heartbroken that it wasn't, you know, well received. And to him, he's like, I think he's quoted as saying that he would have made it, you know, the next day in a heartbeat, despite all the kind of negativity surrounding it. I mean, it wasn't a complete bomb at the box office, but certainly didn't live up to kind of his earlier films, whether you want to kind of attribute that to the shadow falling out of favour or maybe the kind of construct of the the story wasn't to people's taste. I'm, I'm not really sure. It's, to me, when I watch it as a modern viewer, I think it's like a really successful film, but it just didn't seem to resonate with people as much as you would have expected.
2: Yeah, I also wonder when when we talk about how it's like a more kind of, um, even though there's psychic powers, kind of like a uh, pedestrian story, it's, it's an investigation. I wonder, like you talk about the rise of the Polizia Techie, maybe it's just like, those are also incredibly violent kind of mm-hmm. weird movies. So this is pretty tame compared to those as well. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because I don't think Fulci had been... Quite the gore meister that we would get come to know him as, but there is something unusual about how chill this one is, other than yeah, the yeah. mom scraping her face on the cliffs of Dover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: but that's right out of Don't Torture a doctor yeah, right? yeah. exactly. basically doing yeah, yeah. exactly the same thing. Uh, which yeah, I mean that's it kind of sets you up for what you're expecting. And then I can see audiences watching it being like, oh yeah, this is gonna be like a big bloodbath. And then you're led into this like very um twisty dreamlike sort of plot. Um I've heard a lot of modern um, viewers find this slow, but they also find and the Pajama Girl case slow. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm like, okay, well then maybe this movie is not for you. <laughs> like yes, You kind of have to want to sit in this world and spend time with people. Um, one of the things we've really been exploring over these late 70s movies is there's a lot of hangout movies and you spend a lot of time with these people just kind of getting to know them. And this almost feels the same way. Like even though as she's gathering evidence she's like, you know, hanging out with the sister-in-law and then she mm. meets this person and, and there's just a lot of socialization as she gathers evidence- in a, in a way, because she has to gather evidence without actually gathering evidence.
2: True. Yeah. Though I, I would also say, compared to a lot of Giallo, this one is kind of refreshing because you at least find a dead body like right away. It's not one of those ones where it's just a person hanging out <laughs> and there's murders <laughs> and you're slowly waiting for those two to kind of swim together.
0: <laughs> now, with the lack of gore here and the fact that it was a failure for Fulgi, do you think that's the lesson he took? Because the very next movie he did was Zombie 2, which number one, notorious, however, disgusting it is number two zombie fighting a shark <laughs> like that's the YouTube clip everyone mm-hmm. will recognize from that yeah. movie like did he just kind of go off the rails at that point and go okay well I just have to make things uh over the top like I can't go back to this kind of softness did he ever go back to this kind of softness
1: well, yeah, I think it's interesting because for those familiar with Filchie, you know, he is a director synonymous with eye gouging and you see people being thrown from cliffs and dying in a variety of <laughs> ways, you know. yeah, And the psychic does come across as tame in comparison to, you know, all those films, you know, earlier films as well as later ones. You know, even like we said, you know, even when you look at the term like shallow, you kind of expect a lot of killings and that's not what we get here. And maybe that factors into why it, it wasn't, you know, particularly successful at the time or isn't always beloved now because it doesn't adhere to those, you know, more rudimentary elements. Uh, but um, I think, you know, the script, it does have min- minimal situations in which violence can occur, firstly. So, you know, it's it's not right. a film with, with a, a particularly high body count. Um, but yeah, secondly, for all the discussions surrounding Fulci and the label given to him as the godfather of gore, he was fundamentally a director was, you know, a great flair for the thriller and for cultivating an atmosphere of horror and that was kind of exhibited in some of his earlier works like A Perversion Story from 1969 or Don't Tor- Torture a Duckling because that, you know, was its criticism of the Catholic Church and wow. ruinations on Modernity and all of those elements. So, He was perfectly capable of constructing horror films or films with elements of horror that, you know, didn't devolve into out-and-out-of-gore, but that did become a signature of his career once we entered into the 80s. You know, take, for example, his infamous Shallow of the New York Ripper, which is still cut Uh, here in the UK, which is 40 40 years later, which is a very different beast to the psychic. Despite the film not being hugely successful, he... Handled it fairly successfully, and ironically, that kind of led to Fabrizio D'Angelis enlisting the director to direct Zombie Two. He was impressed by you know how he did the violent scenes in this. So, despite it being quite contained, it was impressive enough for him to you know get him on board with with Zombie Two. And then, arguably, that's when Fulci went off into that career tra- trajectory in the eighties when he did make very violent films because. That seemed to be kind of where the wind was blowing.
2: Mm-hmm. I like uh, actually the you you shared an article Becky by this guy Douglas Buck that I think also made a kind of a good point where it's like th- that this movie almost feels like <laughs> him getting a regular movie out of his system and and yeah. that it's showing how well that these especially him and Sacchetti that the 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 writer who they went on to make some of the most like I love the Beyond. But I'm not going to tell you that the Beyond <laughs> fully makes sense. No, but, it, but it's the same <laughs> kind of fatalism. Are you going to watch
0: people's faces melting? Yeah, sure. of course, it's <laughs> great. Yes.
2: But it's it's it has a lot of the same themes of fatalism and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting that yeah, this guy's sort of thesis was that the psychic was them being like, okay, this is the normal way, and now we're going to try to kind of iterate more extreme, more unusual versions of it.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Like you say, it's this idea of like fatalism. There's a very nihilistic kind of element to his work. And this is maybe more of a traditional way of dealing with those themes. And then in other films, he kind of takes them more to an extreme. Yeah. So you can <laughs> see that thematic strand, yeah, through his work. But um, here it's more dressed up as a kind of conventional whodunit. Well, I say conventional, not overly conventional, but no, conventional maybe no. by Fulci's standards uh, later on. Sure.
0: I much prefer the title Murder to the Tune of Seven Black Notes. I gotta say, there's like a poetry to it that I feel fits this movie more than The Psychic does. Yeah, I mean,
1: even The Psychic as a title, it feels a bit like it gives away... Yeah, it's like because you don't know if she's crazy or not. And I'm no,
2: like, I, I mean,
1: want
0: to even know if she's
1: cool. Yeah, if she's there or not.
2: I guess I just kind of trusted that she was psychic from minute one. I don't know why. <laughs> like, as soon as she had visions, I I was just all in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think Word of the Tune Seven notes feels more like a kind of shallow title, doesn't it? Because it mm-hmm. kind of harks back to the Dario Argento, you know, like animals and numbers yeah. and that kind of thing in titles. So I agree, it's a better title. And it fits with, you know, the crucial part of the film, which is, you know, the importance of music.
2: Mm-hmm. Which was, yes, I think, vital. the key.
1: Um, when Dardano Sacchetti kind of suggested that, felt really loved that idea of the the musical notes being incorporated into the mystery.
0: I mean, the one IMDb thing that always comes up in every single article <laughs> is that this, uh, the seven notes are used in Kill Bill and it's like, mm. is, like it's Tarantino was planning a remake and it never happened. And it's like, I'm kind of glad that a remake never happened because this feels like it's very of a time, of a place. Like even the, the Luca Guadino Suspiria, it was smart that he's like, I just reinvented it. I kind of went off what my nightmares were because these movies I do feel are um, unrepeatable. They're very much of a time and of a place and there's a feel and especially that graininess you get in these 70s movies and that dreamy quality you get in these 70s movies where the acting isn't the best and the the dubbing is terrible and but it all sort of feeds into the same thing of making everything very surreal.
1: Yeah, certainly. And I think it does have that really dreamlike atmosphere that you can't really find so much in modern day films. You know, there's a, a variety of reasons for that, but it is hard to replicate it. And I just can't really see, not just Tarantino, but I can't really see anyone being able to kind of successfully achieve what Filci did here.
0: It's interesting when you were talking about the Italians driving things into the ground because I was reading about um, Sacchetti as well and he was saying that his relationship with producers was that they would ask him to write two to five lines for a film in various various genres like an adventure film, a western, or pornography Um, and then they would make a uh, movie poster based on that and then they would shop that around, get the funding and then make the movies and then he would write the script and that's very similar. We've covered canon films in Uh, a large thing when we were talking about toby hooper's uh time with him um and that's kind of exactly what they would do where they would like have a title and they would do a poster and Mm -hmm. they would bring it to can on the marketplace and be like okay who wants to buy what and then they would make that movie that had the most sales and that feels like the same kind of approach here where um you're sort of if you will throwing spaghetti at the wall and being like all right what do audiences want so the idea that you would be able to get something that was Like so unique as this, and that this would be what audiences want is kind of remarkable to me.
1: Yeah, no, certainly. It does seem strange because you have this, like I always find as the Italian cinema, on one hand, you've got this like really fast production cycle where everyone was trying to capitalize on trends the time. And like you said, with Dardano, like just firing off lines and seeing like who would, you know, take the bait when it came to creating a poster. And then <laughs> yeah. and then on the other hand, you've got films that people see as, you know, these incredible, you know, like thrillers or quite art artistic, like productions with these off-kilter kind of elements. And, I suppose like, we'll get into it. the Chava Girl case it seems almost strange that these films could ever be made because they don't always appear to be what I would consider I don't know maybe I'm wrong of you know like mass you know, yeah. mass
2: culture mm-hmm. I know what you mean and if you read the like making of this film it's so bizarre because it's like they're trying to, two are trying to adapt a novel and then they bring in a third writer and then they kind of fight about it but then he really oppresses them and then it like uh, it, it like snowballs to where they produce a version of that novel and then nobody likes it so then they're like well let's just kind of rip it off and do it for someone else it it seems there is no way that it should be as good a film as it is and and it's the same thing with the italians where it's like these are all co-productions they're trying to bring in whatever celebrity they can uh they're trying to just mix weird groups of people who don't speak the same language and it comes out good sometimes i don't know
0: so you have that, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting to me, like Suspiria with like the weird dubbing where everybody is speaking their own language as well. And everybody is is doing this. This is the same year, Suspiria, which is why we keep bringing it up because there's so many similarities to that film. And that was the one that really broke into the American market. Um, but it, it's so weird when you have like Americans and then you have Udo Kier speaking German and then you mm-hmm. have, you know, like it's all, it's all kind of in its own little world. Why would they want to dub everything into English as opposed to Italian? Is that just the broader market?
1: Well, I mean, the question of dubbing, I guess, falls on quite nicely from why international stars were often in Italian productions. You know, so the frequent use of dubbing from a language perspective is just that these films could be easily dubbed for different countries. So you would dub the parts where individuals were speaking in a different language. And if you get these films, you can often see actors speaking in their native tongues, which you just touched upon, um, which will differ from the language of you know the person they're acting against, which seems Very strange for us. Um, But yeah, this was very much the norm in Italy for a variety of reasons. Films were shot without sound. um, So everyone would be dubbed in the appropriate language at the post-production stage for ease. And the dubbing industry was this real slick powerhouse in Italy. And um, in regards to cinema, it only really started to change in the 1980s, um, how they did um dubbing and how everything was, you know, as I said, um kind of done in post-production. Um there were lots of co-productions between countries as well, like you know, Spanish, Italian, spaghetti, westerns, etc. So it just made sense really with you got a variety of languages to do it like that. Um, I suppose for English speaking countries where the majority of our films are in our mother tongue, it's jarring to hear this in Italian genres, and it wasn't strange practice for Italians. And, as you know, like, they would have their own Italians come in and dub their films. So they would watch it, you know, with everybody, like Jennifer O'Neill would be dubbed over by, you know, a prolific dubbing artist. and But then they would have their Italian actors speaking Sometimes in their voices, sometimes they would be dubbed over as well. Yeah. Um. I yeah. think like, yeah, for later, you get some later stuff, like just off the top of my head, like uh, Dario Argento's Sistento Syndrome, which is much later in the mid-90s, but you have an Italian actress and a German actor, both acting in English, but then being dubbed over by other English speakers.
2: Sure. I mean... Yeah. I think you 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 dropped Jeff Goldblum earlier. I love the Sentinel from this year in America, yes. and they dubbed over him in that. It's a very famous, <laughs> like, oh, what is coming out of his mouth? Yeah, it's uh, really
1: weird, isn't it? <laughs> like,
2: yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's also like worth saying that all of the dubbing stuff, you know, it stems from Mussolini in the 30s, and and trying to universalize the Italian language. He wanted to wipe out regional Italian languages. So on top of you know changing all foreign languages to italian it was changing all the regional italian speakers into a united language so uh as as fascist as that is (laughs) it was a concept that caught on and and obviously it could be extended to selling something internationally
1: sorry Sorry. no i was gonna say when you look at old reviews sometimes you'll see people kind of comment on certain actors like accents because they've got regionalized accents or you know they're from the south and kind of down on a bit. I think Fabio Tessi is one of those ones that always gets this accent mentioned by people. So yeah, there was this, like you say, an idea of almost universalizing the language. Maybe, you know, like in this country, that idea of like wanting people to kind of have that received pronunciation not regionalized. Uh, obviously everything's completely yeah. different now
0: well even early Hollywood too thinking about trans, uh, the transatlantic accent oh, of right course, like there was yeah. that weird heightened sort of element to it that's just it's just so weird like I know Giancarlo Giannini became a dubbing star as well because he was the voice for Michael Douglas and Dustin Hoffman anytime yeah. they dubbed an American movie which is just wild you have this mega superstar in Italy also playing American um, American superstars as their dubbing voice and being famous for that as well because they would have been familiar with his voice
2: I just I read he was the Joker in Batman <laughs> <laughs> which i'm like amazing <laughs>
1: you know it's a lot of, lot of money in it for people so it's something you yeah. didn't really have over here but for for them you know like i said it was a huge industry also a huge
2: um thought of as artistic they have awards and stuff they they actually kind of respect it as its own art form in a way that uh, uh i think a lot of even other uh countries uh don't
1: yeah what do you think about the idea of parapsychology in the film because I think it was Lucio mm. Fulci that said that he was coming from it from a kind of scientific perspective as opposed to you know one of a supernatural perspective and there I don't know about other countries as much but in Italy there was certain like certainly an obsession with the paranormal and the supernatural and parapsychology in the 1970s so
2: that's mm-hmm. maybe
1: partly why we see this here.
2: Um, I think you see it too it's a great link to another worse movie from 1977 uh, the exorcist 2 where i think that yeah more and more you start to see that can we find the real answer i also like somebody was bringing up uh that there's kind of the like tension between masculine and feminine in this movie and that the, the paranormal is more feminine. And I even think, even though that guy obviously has a crush on the, the psychic lady, he's a bit, he's a bit more of an uh dandy man, the paranormal investigator. Um, <laughs> and and that, 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 yeah, the, the like violent murdery guys are, are much more masculine. I think it's, it's very cool. And I also wonder, do you feel at all? Like to me, so much of the start of this movie reminded me of Deep Red, which I know is like kind of a phenomenon in its own way. But then it it kind of twisted it too. the The way that it's like you think she might be seeing the past, but mm-hmm. eventually she's seeing the future. And I'm wondering, do you think do you think that that they even had that in mind that we are like tricking an audience who is used to this kind of psychic vision?
1: No, I certainly think you're right. And in fact, I think Dardano Sacchetti was brought on because he could mirror that kind of Argento style thriller, and that was something that they wanted to incorporate into the psychic and it's certainly present there and there was you know lots of shallowly of the time that looked at that idea of you know fragments of memory and trying to remember something a key detail obviously deep bread is the best i would say is the best example of it but you've got things like puzzle as well did you, uh, i think it was 1974
2: mm. i don't so know are, i don't know yeah that's I'll a bit more down. of an obscure
1: one but yeah okay. there are these things about you know recalling elements and obviously in this it's you know something that happens in, in the future but for audiences back then that would have been familiar with these other films, and maybe they would have thought that pointed towards something happening in the past.
0: You articulated that very well because I'm like, hold on, where's the map? Here's yeah, my red yeah. strings. I am putting them but on it, the board. Like it, it
2: truly got me because I was like, you know, doing a wank motion at the screen, being like, yeah, I get it, deep red. And then it <laughs> immediately, it immediately <laughs> is like, no, you don't. Uh, okay, fair. Sure. I win you, this way. You got me. Um, <laughs>
0: Uh, it also reminds me a lot too of like more modern movies. Like obviously, James Wan is a fan. It really reminds me of the Insidious series because you've got Lin Shay and the two paranormal guys kind of coming in and doing doing their mm, thing. Sure. And that's also got elements of the Changeling when they're doing the automatic mm-hmm. writing and that automatic writing scene from the Changeling, which is amazing. Yeah. And it's, you're kind of seeing like that is very much that interest in like the paranormal and the new wave and very much the um, the hippie movement and mm-hmm. the psychedelia and that same paralyzation with or. The, Paralyzation? I'm going with that. Paralyzation (laughs) that you would have with with, uh, drugs and then also the idea that there's something beyond. Um, That would also tie into watching all of these very um, unusual psychedelic sort of images. Mm -hmm. So we're also coming to a point here where we're seeing with movies, like we've talked earlier about, um, like Between the Lines, where we're coming to the end of the hippie generation. There's a lot of disillusionment um, with Vietnam and all that happening. So now there's a lot of questioning of, does this stuff even is does this stuff exist do we have patience for this do we have time for this so this also feels like an end of an era for that kind of questioning but also that we should be questioning it
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i i mean i don't it's interesting because i do think that there's this kind of peak in at least in film Peak and valley of uh, psychic investigation and kind of the scientist uh, stuff like the entity is all about yes. like a oh, very scientific look or I, I even think Poltergeist is is quite deep into the. How might a scientist? But then, uh, like, it kind of all gets shot out of the water by Ghostbusters, which is also about a series of <laughs> paranormal investigators. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. And I, I don't quite know culturally what happened there. Because I, when, when I was growing up in the 90s, you know, the X-Files kind of brought that stuff back. And, but I guess it turned into aliens. I don't know.
0: It always seems like it has to be a real like that's kind of the point we're at. I just started watching um, that Evil show on Paramount, mm. and that is the same thing where there, it's the the writers the good the good wife and the good fight. So it's supposed to be two opposing sides where like she is a psychiatrist and he is a priest, and they're actually investigating whether or not you know evil exists and do possessions mm. exist and things in the paranormal. Um, but it's very very clear that it does, and so there mm. there never is actually that question. It's just like oh, so you just want her to lose her faith in science? Like that's that's all. All this is. And that's always the tightrope, I guess. And the choice you have to make is like, is it real or is it not? And what side do you want to be on with the science?
2: And I think that that's what maybe why I like Giallo when they incorporate these elements because it's a point of view. You are with the character who is psychic. Like, actually, I, I'm not sure. Rachel, you're the expert, so I turn to you. Is, <laughs> is there anyone where the, somebody's having these visions and, and they're just crazy? Like, I don't think that that ever really happens, does it?
1: There's kind of examples of films where they do play with the idea of people are they mad or is it really occurring there's um autopsy I don't know if you heard of that which mm, is uh, mm-hmm. Armando Crispino from 1975 again you know a bit more of an experimental time for the the genre and it's this idea of sunspots on the sun and how you know when there's these flare-ups it causes mm. like people to kind of go crazy and it's got this amazing kind of opening where um people are you know killing themselves and killing their children doing really horrible things you know supposedly because of this uh, scientific phenomena. Mm. Um, uh-huh. And then they look at, you know, this idea of science and, you know, the occult and whatever. And then it turns out that there's actually a far more kind of rational reason behind what's going oh, on in the film. So, yeah, there are, you know, films that kind of play with that idea. Um, and then there's obviously a lot of films from the period as you kind of touched upon about like female neurosis and how that manifests. And if, you know, it's like, you know, female mental illness being kind of projected as uh, something supernatural, you know, stuff like uh-huh. um, another good comparison would be uh, Mario Bava's shock. Mm-hmm. From yeah. at the same time as well, which has got yeah. similarities to The Psychic. It both kind of has that pole thing where someone's, you know, bricked up behind a wall and it's, you know, about visions and, you know, the reliability of memory or what we're seeing and our sanity and all those kind of things, so...
0: You know, the famous progressive in their gender politics, Italians.
2: <laughs> hey, Italians. listen, at least I. I, I it is a, a strange thing. But I did like somebody also, uh, one of the creators said that they considered this like a gothic novel because yes. it was very much. And I think that that's the same, you know, a woman mm. treated as crazy quite often finding out, you know, maybe there's a little magic, but it's mostly proving she's not crazy.
1: That yeah, big spooky house. Like I love a big spooky house. Well, I actually went to Siena where the film was... Uh Made. i didn't go specifically for really? that reason yeah i like, I like to <laughs> okay. go in a minute i like to go and see locations so i saw like the That's outside awesome. of the house and all that so yeah wow. it was amazing and it's such a beautiful city and it's kind of perfectly used here and i don't believe there were any other thrillers filmed in Siena. so it makes it a bit different and it's such a glamorous looking film isn't it you know jennifer oh, yeah. is so glamorous and the costumes and this kind of wealth and decadence and everyone's you know like an equestrian and <laughs> like a yeah. certain yeah, amount of glamour to it There's something
2: about the tameness that also actually allows that glamour to kind of be elevated, because you're not watching a lot of women be brutalized or, uh, you know, sleaze.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you're just taking in kind of the whole environment. And again, it feeds into that dreamlike atmosphere, doesn't it? And you also get those like wee bits of kind of like almost like a curio, don't you, where... Like curiosities from the time like the taxi driver, how they say, Oh, taxis were painted yellow in this year, and then the radio mm-hmm. kind of signals didn't come until that year, and they try and work out through these various kind of advents in technology and things, which I think is quite nice. Well, it was
0: also a country still in recovery as well, right? Like they're still mm-hmm. recovering from World War Two at this point.
2: Oh yeah. It's a it's a variant turmoil as well. This is when you had the like neo-fascists and the communists bombing each other um that's actually i believe one of the reasons why their original film got cancelled is because there was <laughs> just too many bombs and they were like no good
1: yeah it's really scary and volatile time i think for italians so that obviously manifests in the cinema of the time like obviously you know the polizioteki you know, that's a more of a literal interpretation of it but yeah in the horror films it certainly does come out and again you know anxieties about you know women's liberation and stuff you see that in films as well that's why a lot of these kind of female neurosis films um Come to the fore. People are scared, you know, the power of women, you know, the idea of a woman having, you know, psychic powers. You can kind of make a whole argument about that.
2: Fair.
0: I feel like that is the perfect place for us to transition to our next film, which is significantly less classy, a lot more sleazy, but just as fascinating. It's The Pajama Girl Case, and that's coming up after the break. Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one, because I have a very tiny dog no. who likes very fancy things, sure. and, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes on to the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before, as well as you know, the classic blockbuster favorites.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something escape yeah. from New York? These big movies, but then uh, when you look at the landscape of of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost. Even the big boys, and like, forget about uh, you know discovering black directors of the 1970s, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out, and it's always very satisfying. When we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people.
0: Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with. And I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider. Or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out HollywoodSuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. The Pajama Girl case has a lot of similarities to another movie we'll be discussing this season, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. It's voyeuristic, shocking, and centers on a fictionalized version of a true crime. It also marches inexorably to a foregone conclusion as you watch helplessly. Set in Australia, where everyone speaks Italian for some reason, it's a movie that can be classified as shallow, but also is in a class by itself. Cam, how is this one for you?
2: uh yeah weird i don't know i was i was surprised by it but kind of into it because i do think it kind of walks the line it's it's sort of undeniably of a piece uh with this genre but it's it's doing different stuff you kind of see uh, like what what you're talking about that this is sort of late period experimental unusual um also i'm not i I guess i don't uh, maybe i would turn to rachel for this they're not often based on true crime as well, right? Like, for the most part, I feel like Giallo are, are fantastical crimes. So I was quite fascinated to have one based on a real case, which is weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you get into the 1980s, I don't know if you've heard of the Monster of Florence murders, but there were a couple of Monster of Florence films, well, three, in fact, and they were very... um Seen as very distasteful at the time because they were horrendous, you know, like sex crimes. And then they were like, right, we're going to make films with these. And it was a bit too close to the bone and families got involved in things. And like you say, they tended... Mostly to kind of stay away from, like, true crime. Maybe they take small elements of, you know, various stories, um, not necessarily even just murder cases, sometimes things to do with, you know, like, um, fraud or that that kind of, yeah. just, that kind of thing. Just yeah. because, like, especially in the late 60s stuff that we're, we're more involved in, like, you know, insurance scams and the, like, yeah, yeah so that does kind of set the pyjama... Pajama Girl case apart um, from all yeah. of its other kind of films of its era.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess to quickly go through the plot, uh, it's based on a real Australian murder from the 1930s. But here we, we've <laughs> disco-fied it <laughs> into the 1970s. <laughs> yeah. The Pajama Girl case is based on kind of Australia's most infamous unsolved murder called the Pajama Girl. It was a girl who was shot through the throat Uh, burnt up in a sack. Uh, Here they move it into the 1970s. Pretty much the same, (laughs) but, uh, you know. Uh, And actually, there's odd elements that you think would never happen in the 1970s that they throw in just because it's like a good part of the history. Uh, But we're seeing this case unfold. They find the body. The police are kind of interested and we are also following uh ray Miland playing a <laughs> retired detective uh retired canadian detective uh mm-hmm. feather in our cap um who ju- is just kind of bored and wants in on the case and thinks that the the current detective is ineffectual uh along the way we are also seeing uh Kind of a whole other plot thread, which is uh, about a woman uh, played by Dalila uh who people might know. Uh, what's the bug one? Phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, Phenomenal, my fave. <laughs>
0: the bug <laughs> one. I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> I,
2: yes, I love it. Um yeah, she's the mean headmistress in Phenomena. She is a woman who's just having all these affairs, and kind of, like we were talking about, this is kind of just a a lady living her life, but it's quite sexy, and she has a few lovers, and an Italian man who wants to marry her, and uh, Mel Ferrer is an older lover of hers. <laughs> she's just kind of flitting around, but unhappy, and and you kind of feel tension building, especially with the uh, the man she eventually marries, uh, and here's your spoiler warning for you should watch this movie we like it it's a bit grimmer uh, a bit more intense depending on your intensity levels but uh you eventually realize and actually i think they do quite a good job of hiding it i didn't realize till far in maybe i'm just dumb again uh that you her story is actually the story of the woman who is the body and you slowly kind of realize that you are watching the murder unfold as you are watching the people investigate it.
0: And the twists in this one actually surprised me as well. There's a couple of moments where I'm like, "They killed the detective!" <laughs> like, there's yeah. your other spoiler. Yes. Like, it just it, things just keep happening that you're like, "I'm sorry, what?" Yeah. Um, now, this is a bit different from the original case, although the case is is really fascinating. Do you know mm-hmm. much about the the murder of uh, of Linda Agostini?
1: Yeah, I mean, think I know a fair bit about it. As you say, it's. The film's obviously based on it, but there's certainly different elements. Um, obviously, we're transported now to the 1970s, but we still have, you know, this character called Antonio, who's an Italian immigrant. I think in this case, Glenda is Dutch.
2: Glenda mm, was yeah. British.
1: Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the way that the crime happens is the same. But what what I think is really an interesting point of similarity between them, which is, I think when you watch it, well, for me, I didn't know about the case before I watched it um and what's really striking is that that scene where her body's laid out in this perspex case and everybody oh, yeah. watches so hard and observes her body and it's this really horribly voyeuristic moment that actually happened in real life yeah. they had her body on display for years uh and you know to, uh, to kind of help with the identification of the body but of course yeah. it just became this really like a horrible spectacle. attraction yeah um
2: Yeah, that's definitely the part that feels like they probably wouldn't have done that in the 70s. They probably would have put a photo in a newspaper or something. (laughs) But I also find that part very fascinating because, again, this is like an interesting late period Giallo thing where I think it is undeniably confronting the audience with like, well, this is what you like about Giallo, isn't it? Like, you're the sicko. (laughs) And and yeah, yeah, it's so weird. I don't know.
1: Because you're kind of, when you see that shot and it's the famous shot from the film where it's, we're seeing her body from behind and then at mm. the front we see her face, you know, burnt up. So you've got that strange exposition of, you know, the supposed kind of perfect body mm-hmm. with like a, a mangled face. And then her really bright blue eyes are kind of looking out at you and it's supposed to be this, you know, commentary on, you know, the voyeurism and, and, and horror films and how we get our kicks and I suppose the humanity of kind of the individuals that you know we're we often leer at in the newspapers or, or on film. Sorry, I'm probably not saying that very well. <laughs> Just no, no, it does no, yeah, totally sense. Yeah, yeah, so we are are complicit in we are complicit in the act of watching. Um, which is an uncomfortable uh, reality to kind of be presented with here. And I mean, it,
2: it continues through the the realization that what you've been watching uh, that that kind of seems soapy is just the story of this woman who's going to be murdered. And, and they do, I do think that they take a lot of care as much as there is the shocking stuff. It's very interesting and gross, but you can find photos of the real body of the real uh, person, and it actually looks quite a lot like the the recreation they have so i do think that there's something somewhat of like a a a level of respect even though they are not one-to-one uh making a biopic of this woman
0: this is a very uh feeling movie for me like i couldn't help thinking about like minnie and Moskowitz, which we've covered on the podcast previously um not only in terms of the um extremely difficult to watch uh, relationship dynamics that are happening within this film, Um, but also in that Cassavetes loves a face, and Mm. you are seeing so many just faces of real people uh, both reacting to the body, but just like at the beach. The entire opening is so fascinatingly contradictory and off-putting in that you're just watching people have a lovely time at the beach, you're listening to a pop pop song sung by the glorious uh, icon Amanda Lear, (laughs) Um, Mm. and then you know there's a car on fire and then you kind of devolve from there and it's again that's just inviting you into this like false sense of this is going to be you're going to be okay and then you're really not going to be okay
1: yeah and I think that really plays to this idea of the immigrant dream doesn't it it's you know this yeah. idea of it being picture perfect you know we're on the beach the sun shining everything's beautiful and then the reality is a lot darker than what's initially presented
0: well, that's something I was curious about here because um, they are in Australia, mm-hmm. and then she is Dutch. And, um, McGurney spent time in it in Australia mm-hmm. making a film, which is how he uh, he heard about this case and got fascinated by it in the first place. Um, but apparently, he faced a lot of um, extreme prejudice while he was there, and so that's part of what you're seeing in this film, this um, critique about uh, uh, immigrants being in Australia. In Australia, but it's also interesting to me that they're white; they just don't speak mm. English. So that's also an angle you often don't see
1: yeah I mean it, it is fascinating in, the, in the, the pajama girl case I find that Australia kind of has this reputation I don't know about where you are but there's some uncomfortable things about race relations there mm-hmm. oh we've I mean, talked about it yeah, yeah it's been on the show yeah that's good <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's, it's it's really difficult like you say you maybe it seems quite surprising to see that directed at Italians um the mid-20th century saw plenty of emigration to Australia. So naturally we had films from that era that explored the stories or, you know, at least showed an interest towards Australia from an Italian perspective. And As you've mentioned, we have A a Girl in Australia from 1971, which Flavio Mogherini worked on as a production designer and kind of got the inspiration um, for the film from. But there was also um, a Monica uh, Monica Vitti and Adriano Celentano film from 1977 um, as well called La Ultra Meta. And that was, you know, um, about a priest that goes to an Australian mining village. So there was this interest in Australia just because so many Italians went there um, those films kind of used Australia as, as a setting in a more comedic way. Um, they didn't explore the kind of immigration issue and kind of the, on the darker side of things. But here, yeah, obviously there's clear kind of common, commentary about immigration. And I think, you know, like, this is me probably going off on a massive tangent, but I don't know about <laughs> like, if you've read this, it's a couple of years ago, there was an article about Crocodile Dundee. Oh. And they were talking about oh. how films back then, about places like Australia were presenting a country that a lot of people weren't overly familiar with you know without globalization and the internet there was a kind of Mm -hmm. mystification of a a place like that and these kind of films where people went and there was like you know a geographical or cultural kind of fish out of water element um, or someone coming you know to another country and the same thing happening um, were a lot more commonplace back then and so I think for for Italians watching this or you know for other people watching it it would have been quite something to see a place like Australia I mean like even yeah. for me when I, I grew up in the 90s and I remember seeing like rescuers down under uh, and ah, a yes. neighbors, which is a big soap and it was yeah. like Australia seemed like this really weird like exotic place that you didn't know much about and being in the, the further, furthest kind of corner of the world like it, that yeah that would have been the case for a lot of people so kind of its use here is like and the, on the immigra- on the immigration side of things and how hard it is for immigrants in the struggle but you know it's also this kind of jet setter aspect of the giallo really
2: that is kind of an aspect of giallo too i find is like even if it's places around italy it does seem like like james bond style mm-hmm. it, the killings are quite often in a different city or in a different context
1: yeah yeah certainly and that's something they kind of played on because these films were a chance to see these places that you might not typically have seen um here, it's obviously used in a slightly different way because it kind of becomes glaringly clear that as much as, you know, Australia is an immigrant nation, it's one where immigrants such as Antonio feel othered and they don't have the same rights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like people not wanting to go to the police because they feel they will be treated differently by the police. And we see, you know, not just uh, Glenda and Antonio, but, you know, the Chinese immigrants in the laundrette. We've got this man who I mm-hmm. believe is from Surrey and he's married, you know, an Australian. And mm-hmm. they're talking about, you know, marrying people to get in. And I think Roy is mentioned as danish as well so you know lots of immigrant immigrant characters and they're really you know struggling and it's the series of events that occur are are quite tragic and partly why they occur i guess is because of the treatment of these certain characters by society
0: and everybody just kind of snaps everybody gets tired of the pressure and it's uh it's. I mean, it, it's a pressure cooker of a movie mm-hmm. where it just keeps building and building and building. And it's that, like I said, with them, um, same as the Mr. Goodbar. Like it's the same as same thing. It's wild. Both these movies came out in that same year where you just they're so you just feel like you're marching to an end and yeah. you, you can't look away. You can't stop it. It's just going to happen. And it's, it's. I don't want to say it's a pleasant experience because it's not, yeah. but it is a fascinating experience. Like there's a, a, that's what horror is, right? You can't look away.
2: Yeah. And I, I do think that the, the immigrant stuff uh, and actually even elements of Giallo, it's like, it's quite a sexual movie, but I don't think that that necessarily does wrong by the, real case too because the interesting thing is like it was in the 30s and it was very much uh influenced by the pajamas she had on were kind of like swinger jazz uh clothes so so it was yeah so it was considered that you know she was probably killed because she was you know a flapper uh, around with too many men so it is it's i do think it's kind of interesting how they yeah thread that needle with with a modern sort of uh idea that works as well and yeah here again you're kind of seeing the woman punished for uh having to turn to sexual stuff because she just has no options
1: yeah exactly and it's funny as well when you think about the original case like one of the reasons why her husband said you know that she was murdered was because she was you know drinking too heavily she had too much of a penchant for whiskey Mm. and things like that which is you know like nowadays it seems well maybe not as absurd as you'd hope but yeah, it's it's an uncomfortable truth that you know women acting out in these ways uh would have you know frequently entered in people's deaths and i suppose glenda like her behavior i don't know maybe some people in the audience would be going oh that's what you get for um doing all these things but it's, it's I don't it's, think it's, it's bad I it's think she's just desperate though. yeah because yeah. she's desperate so it's, you might you, on, on the surface you might kind of have that reading or someone might have that reactionary like feeling to it but it is I think Flavio Mogherini is quite sensitive so you know her plight.
2: It, the The only weird tone he strikes is he is weirdly sensitive to the guy who kills her too. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't. I don't think he's insensitive to her. And also, it brings up again a thing where you're like, God, what a dated thing is like. She just tries to leave her husband, and everyone is kind of like, you can't leave. Like you legally cannot leave your husband. Like like the police will come and bring you back to your your abusive husband. Yeah. Like there is no. You can't. You you like you have to disappear. If you want to leave your husband, which is like, wow, that is not so long ago that that was like, uh, that's wild <laughs> Yeah, yes. they're, they're on your abusive husband's side.
0: Well, speaking of the person who killed her, we should get into Howard Ross a little bit because he had had a hell of a career. He's an interesting dude.
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you were saying, the the big peplum boom. He comes out of that, and he's a real muscle man, as you will see <laughs> in most of his glory, maybe all his glory in this movie, if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, uh, an odd guy. Uh, I, I didn't go too deep into him. I'll leave that to you two.
1: The thing that always strikes me about Howard Ross in this film is those blue contact lenses that he wears.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. he stated <laughs> that it was really uncomfortable for him to
1: wear them. He's like, oh my god, I, I'm you know miserable on this shoot because I have got these oh, horrible yeah. light blue contacts and. Uh, which seemed quite jarring when you see him up close. But again, I I guess that was to kind of make a comparison between him and uh, Michele Placido uh, as Uh Antonio.
0: Um, well I mean he's just one of those guys who like it, it, people he, people just kept kind of discovering him and putting him in different films so like Mario Bava apparently uh found him because he had rescued a drowning boy and he was like <laughs> you're, you seem nice you're in my movie yeah. now yeah. um he also lost um, Mr Universe to Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 1970 uh, the Mr Universe competition so uh there but for the grace of God uh, he. He I heard could he came have been in the governor of California
2: I already he came at 20th I don't count that as losing to Arnold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's losing. Yeah. <laughs> just but yeah, he just seems like he was one of those guys who, like, just he was great to be around and, like, people just liked him. So they're like, okay, now you're in our movie. Now you're in our movie. Mm. And he he just sort of floated from thing to thing. And so he's in, like, his resume is bonkers when you look at it. He's in the New York Ripper as well. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, he's just such an interesting human being. And his stories
1: are wild. Yeah. And he seems really, um, he seems really grateful for the experiences he had and he's very complimentary about people he worked with um he kind of like has talked about his time with Umberto Lenzi and as you kind of imagine Umberto Lenzi doesn't come across as like <laughs> the most sane of people but mm-hmm. um you know there's he worked with. <laughs> Fernando de Leo who was a great craftsman you know as you said Mario Bava, Lucio Fulci. so that's quite something from someone who kind of came up as a stuntman to then end up you know being in all these different films and having such kind of a wonderful career out of it, it just seemed yeah I said very grateful for it and a humble guy.
0: Well, the last kind of things I want to talk about is uh number 1, I would like to get into this soundtrack and the fact that <laughs> Amanda Lear is singing the songs. I love mm. Amanda Lear. She's not a name. I'm actually very surprised that we don't talk about her much more often now cuz <laughs> she's such an interesting human being, especially in context of like, you know, the Warhol girls and and all that factory element and um that there just is still so much mystery surrounding her and that her pop career was enormous.
2: Uh, this is a rare time I'm going to tell you Becky that I don't think you hang out with enough gay men. <laughs> um, they, that would be they it. They won't. They <laughs> won't shut weird, up. You hang out you with, like, out with a lot of, a of gay men. <laughs> well, this is uh... for me
1: because I have, I have a gay friend, and when he he said like mm. he was like, "Oh my god, in this phone," I was thinking like. Oh, right like is she does a mm. soundtrack and i have to say oh i didn't i didn't realize like she was so big naively but yeah yeah you what gotta to be like a like big attraction. disco
2: person but it is also like a fairly european contained thing and it's interesting because her music is mostly in english but mm-hmm. it's just kind of like weird enough english that i saw her doing like a <laughs> solomon grundy based disco song that is <laughs> wow. so weird uh but yeah she's a, i mean she's a very fascinating person because it's like yeah it, all need to do is pull up that wikipedia page and just start reading the history and it's like we don't know where she was born we don't know what gender she was at birth uh nothing it's all very complicated and very interesting and i mean yeah the fact that she's one of those european style celebrities too where it's like she's hosted like the news and she's a disco star and whatever else and she's and still she was around salvador Dali's yeah. muse
0: yeah, yeah. and yeah. she goes from there
2: It's very. Yeah. And she's written like 19 books. Uh, But no, the music is so good and it's very fun. I actually never knew that there was like a like an a or movie. And I I definitely have already sent that to a a handful of gay men. I knew who will immediately (laughs) throw this film on.
0: Yeah. going for christmas but again in very stark contrast to the rest of the film and that mm. everything is very bright and poppy and and super fun and yeah i want to i want to see one of those songs pop up in like someone referencing uh <laughs> that in like a modern meta moment yeah. i want yeah. it call, yeah. it, call yeah. your
2: friend that. tarantino or whatever australians <laughs> or james wan i guess dancing.
0: yeah yes. yeah <laughs> it's going to be wonderful <laughs> okay and the last thing i have here what is with all the muppet show clips cuz i have one theory but i need to know the, what you've The
2: closest I got, theory-wise, because we talked about uh, some Italian co-productions when we were talking about disaster movies, is I know that uh, Sir Lou Grade was involved in a lot of uh, Italian and international co-productions at the time, and he also produced The Muppet Show. That's the best I could hope for. <laughs> I couldn't find any proof that Lou Grade was involved, but uh, maybe he shared a drink with somebody and signed off. Uh, also, you're not showing The Muppets. I think that that might just be... Did did you? I never saw The Muppets. I just heard them.
0: It's just clip after clip of it, including the Rita Moreno episode, which is my small person's favorite. <laughs> <Aww>.
2: <laughs> I just... I immediately told uh, Alicia Fletcher, a number one Muppet fan, that uh, that there's a sex scene with the Muppets playing in the background. What do you
1: think, Rachel? Do you have a theory on this? You know, I have no idea why the Muppets. But I like your kind of. I like your attempt to find kind of a sociocultural reason behind it. Um, All right. I think I
0: think it's tongue-in-cheek, and mm. I think it has to do with um, the fact that The Muppet Show had had made such a big deal out of Mana Mana, which was oh. uh, from the Italian Mondo mm. film Svezia, Inferno, and in Paradiso, which was an exploitation film about sexual practices in Sweden.
2: Uh. I think
0: it's a reference to that. I mean, I could be wrong. I think you're overthinking like, it. I, I think it's, I, mo- it's more think,
2: likely it's a reference to sticking a hand up somebody than anything else. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. <laughs> that is where I am then. Ending this episode, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you very much. Cameron Maitland, thank you for joining
2: us. (laughs) Thank you, and I apologize.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Rachel Nesbitt, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. How do people find more of your work? I have a blog called Hypnotic Crescendos, which you can kind of find articles and things that I write. I'm on Twitter, where I tweet about Italian genre cinema endlessly, and I'm on various different releases on boutique home labels. So you can find me there. Thank
0: you. (laughs) fabulous and it's going to be fabulous in two weeks where we look at outrageous and looking for mr goodbar and we'll be joined by the brilliant liz pershell that's coming up in two weeks thanks for joining us for this episode of the a year in film podcast from hollywood suite if you enjoyed the show please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform find us on facebook instagram twitter at hollywood suite hollywood suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s 80s 90s and 2000s Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Rachel Nesbitt as guests. Supervisor producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.